Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Margot Price is a guiding light for young musicians in Nashville. For all those who move here with their instrument and a handful of songs, willing to work in whatever capacity needed to pay the bills, all while holding on to that vision of what kind of musician they want to be, need to look no further than the singer-songwriter from Alito, Illinois. Part of what makes her stand out to audiences is her ability to express the unvarnished realities of life through honest lyricism and the clarity of her voice. Her new book, Maybe We'll Make It, details her journey through some of the most impactful moments of her life and career. Later this hour, we'll sit down with the singer-songwriter, mother, and wife to talk about the book and her music. But first, a recent national study found that Tennessee ranks among the states with the most people who have lost their right to vote because of a felony conviction. And Tennessee now has the highest rate of disenfranchisement of black residents of any state in the country. WPLN's criminal justice reporter, Paige Flager, has been looking into the state laws that make this especially difficult to restore voting rights after serving prison time. That story drops tomorrow on Morning Edition. Paige joins us now with a preview. Paige. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, you know, let's start with the scope of this situation here in Tennessee. What what kind of numbers are we talking about for people who can't vote? Yeah, so it does not look good. Um, this is a new report out from the Sentencing Project, which is a nonprofit research and advocacy organization. And basically, more than 400,000 people in Tennessee are disenfranchised because of a felony conviction. So basically, that means one in 13 adults. And like you were saying, this is especially abysmal for our black residents here in Tennessee. One in five black adults can't vote in Tennessee. One in five. Yes. Black adults. Okay, so how many people have been able to get the right to vote back? Yeah, so there is a process for for getting your voting rights restored in Tennessee, um, but the numbers show that only a tiny fraction of people can get through that process every year. Uh, This year, the Secretary of State's office told me that a little bit more than 450 people have gotten their rights restored. Now, I know you've been interviewing people who've lost their right to vote. How do they describe how they deal with this? Yeah, I think a lot of them told me that they feel like it's really punitive. You know, these are Mm -hmm. people who maybe served their time or they took a plea deal that meant that they were doing community service. They've rehabilitated their lives, um, are back out in their community, feeling like their lives are back on track. Uh, Obviously, they're paying their taxes. They have to abide by our laws, but they have no say in the politics that help shape those laws. So one thing that really stood out to me, too, when I was talking to these people is that A lot of people are often actually surprised that they have signed their right to vote away. They Mm. signed a plea deal because it was the best thing for their situation. And oftentimes they don't even know that it's it's that they're signing away their right to vote. So it's sort of in the small print, you're saying? 
Yeah, we're, there's a lot of confusion, uh, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, about these laws, and, and it's a total patchwork. So I spoke to one woman about this. Um, her name's Pamela Moses. She actually became kind of nationally known because of her case. Um, a probation officer signed off on her paperwork to allow her to vote again, even though she had a prior conviction that made her ineligible. And neither Moses nor the officer knew at the time that that was the case. And so she was convicted again for lying on election document. Mm. Uh, and even though those, those charges were dropped, Moses is still barred from voting forever because of a prior charge. Um, and she basically just told me that she feels like there's a lot of betrayal wrapped up in this. Just trying to get my citizenship back, even though I was taught from all of those colleges and high school that a person's citizenship could never be taken if you were born here. And I found out that that was all a lie. But if that was not the law, they would be able to vote. They could essentially flip the whole state yellow, their own party. That's how serious it is. And so how do we keep people oppressed? Well, we keep doing what we've been doing, business as usual. So that's why it has to change. So I know you've focused on the situation here in Tennessee, but Let's zoom out. Mm -hmm. Where does Tennessee fall nationally when it comes to felony disenfranchisement? Yeah, it don't look good. Mm. Um, Tennessee ranks really poorly along with some of our southern neighbors. So we're talking Alabama, Mississippi and Tennessee. More than 8% of the adult population is disenfranchised. Um, we're with our southern states uh, as, as well as Arizona, Florida, uh, Kentucky, South Dakota, um, when it comes to African-American disenfranchisement being bad. And in total, there's, there's about 4.6 million Americans that are disenfranchised because of criminal convictions in 2022. You know, let's get into the why behind this. Why have so many people in Tennessee lost the right to vote? I mean, this has to have something to do with the system, right? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's sort of been a national trend of lawmakers making it easier for people to get their rights to vote back, but Tennessee has bucked that trend mm. and gone in the opposite direction. Um, so there's a bunch of hoops that we have in Tennessee that people need to jump through. The first one uh, is just finding out if they qualify, which sounds really simple, but it's actually incredibly convoluted. Uh, it depends on what they're charged with and in what year. And those specifics keep on changing. On the Secretary of State's website, uh, you can pull up this page of like when you qualify. There's a period of time randomly, like in the 70s where any any conviction you could still vote uh but then mm. like that changes again in the after 1981 and the charges are changing so it really depends on like when you were charged when you were convicted and what the charge was uh and it's changed basically every decade since the 70s so it's it's really difficult to figure that out so what are other states doing well, I guess let me let me keep going because that's not the only hoop. So the hoop, okay. the first hoop is figuring out if you qualify. The second hoop is uh, you got a big old bill. Um, mm. There's a, a monetary element to this. Um, 
So the price tag, Tennessee requires people to pay off all of their court costs and restitution. And then on top of that, Tennessee is actually the only state that requires people to pay off their back child support before they can vote. Mm. Um, And one person that I spoke to was pointing out kind of how ludicrous that is because it's not like people leaving prison have like a cushy bank account. When you're incarcerated, like your starting wage is about 17 cents an hour. Oftentimes, a lot of what you earn goes towards those fines and fees that you have. And so when you get out, if you're you're looking at a bill of a couple thousand dollars in order to get your voting rights restored, it's, it's out of reach for so many people. Um, and then after you go through all of that, you can get a piece of paper assigned um, saying that you can get your right to vote back. Um, but that can even be really difficult for people who have convictions out of state who need to take that document from Tennessee across state lines to Mm. try and find someone to sign it. So there's just so many different moving parts Mm -hmm. uh, that make it really confusing and complicated for people who are like for officials and also for individuals. So you get a lot of those confusing situations like the Pamela Moses case. Okay, so now... Yes. What are other states <laughs> yeah. up to? Yeah, a lot of other states make it easier than we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as convoluted as that process I just walked you through. Uh, some states like New York and um, Washington actually just automatically restore people's rights after they're released. Other states don't require as many fines and fees. And like I said, Tennessee's the only one who has that child support requirement. Uh, so it, it becomes a lot easier and in the end cheaper for people to get their right to vote back. All right, so you've given us a feel for the challenge for individuals and the big picture about the laws and and policies. What about the impact on the electorate? Yeah, that is the thing that has sort of stuck with me while reporting on this story is just, you know, think about if there were tens or maybe even 100,000 people uh, who were able to vote most of whom are people of color, that can make a really big difference in a state like Tennessee. You know, voter turnout was really low this last election, uh, and there were a lot of tight races in the state that uh, disenfranchised people, if they had the right to vote, again, could really tip the scales um, if they if they got their rights restored. So obviously this is abysmal. Yeah, um, it's not great. Is there any hope for change moving forward? Yeah, so people, people have... They're, I think, cautiously optimistic about the future when it comes to voting rights. Uh, So there are actually several lawsuits moving through multiple levels of the court right now. Um, We've got cases at the state level, federal district court. Uh, There's an appeal at the Supreme Court level, an appeal in the federal sixth district court. So there are a lot of moving pieces um, that are largely targeted at like whether or not Tennessee's laws are constitutional. Um, So I think people have a lot of hope that maybe Tennessee will actually see some changes that could make it even just a little bit easier Mm. for people with felony convictions to vote. If those changes don't happen, I mean, what have people said to you about their next steps? Yeah, I mean... Like we were saying, just as in the same way that these people can make a real difference if they were able to vote, um, people also told me that they feel like uh, these people can make a really big difference even though they can't vote. They could still get politically involved in different ways. Um, You know, think about that like one in 13 figure. Like most of us probably know someone or you've run into somebody or like you've been in line at the grocery store with somebody who is disenfranchised. And... um, 
those people can mobilize. So uh, a lot of folks that I talked to pointed to the success of a recent amendment, um, Yes on Three Slavery Amendment, which mm-hmm. removed slavery as punishment for a crime from the Constitution. Um, Don Harrington's a formerly incarcerated uh, woman, and she helps others get their rights to vote back through her organization, Free Hearts. And she actually helped organize a bunch of disenfranchised Tennesseans to go and get the word out on Yes on Three. Sometimes legislators pick up the phone and they hear from us, and then when they get off, they look up and see if we're not voters, and they're like, we don't have to listen to you, but... Um, those people that are not voters can get out there and organize their own communities across the urban and rural divide. And I think we, we can actually demand for things to change. And so I, I really have a lot of hope in that. Yeah. So it really is folks who have been disenfranchised or currently are disenfranchised who are kind of at the forefront of pushing for several changes, um, including changes to, to their rights to vote. Well, listeners, head out to WPLN.org to read Paige's article on felony disenfranchisement and tune in to Morning Edition tomorrow to hear the full story. Now, I want to thank you so much for being with us. That is WPLN's criminal justice reporter, Paige Flager. Paige, thanks for being here and thanks for your reporting. Yeah, of course. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll sit down with singer-songwriter Margot Price and talk to her about her life in her upcoming book, Maybe We'll Make It. What is your favorite Margot Price song? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Margot Price's debut solo album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, was hailed by critics as one of the best country albums of 2016. Since then, she's released two additional albums, All American Made, and That's How Rumors Get Started. And there's a fourth record on deck, Strays, is set for release early next year. She's been compared to the late Loretta Lynn, her unfiltered storytelling, and her her willingness to tell the truth about life has endeared her to fans all over the world. In addition to songwriter, musician, mother, wife, industry leader, these are all things that Margot Price is. And she's recently added another list to her title, author. Her new memoir, Maybe We Make It, Maybe We'll Make It, tells the stories of of her life from growing up at a small town in Illinois to reaching international acclaim. Margot Price, welcome to This Is Nashville. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. You know, you got a lot going on this week. You, on Wednesday, you know, you'll be at Parnassus Books to talk about your book. Maybe we'll make it. And I, I heard about that book. I heard you started writing it as a therapy exercise. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I did. I, you know, I felt like I had kind of just got my career off the ground, and as soon as. I had put out my second album. I found myself uh, pregnant with my daughter, Ramona, and Mm. had a lot of time at home again. And so while I was, um, while I was giving life to her, I just kind of started writing uh, this, this memoir. And the idea behind it was not really to put it out quite this soon. It just ended up that I wrote so much and somebody read the manuscript and 
everything kind of happened really quickly after that. Well, it took four and a half years of writing, but, yeah. but quickly after that. All right, so let's go in the past a little bit. You're from small town Illinois, Alito to be exact. You know, tell me a little bit about your hometown. What was it like growing up there? It was a really rural area. Um, you know, it's it was a farming community and... A lot of the farms uh, in the town were kind of going under in the mid-80s. There was um, not that much to do there. And so it was easy to find trouble. Um, you know, I, I talk about kind of some of the problems that plagued the Midwest. Um, mm. A lot of people that struggled with alcohol use and, um, and you know, other harder drugs. Um, but it was it was like... Just your classic small town um, in Middle America, and yeah, it, it was almost too small. I would have to say, almost too small. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, as as businesses were kind of failing, and and you know, farms were going under. A lot of people were just moving away, and so um, even from you know, my parents both graduated from there, and it it just is continuing to get smaller and smaller. Um, I still go back and, and visit a little bit, but um, it's just not a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, I understand your family ran into hard times when you were very young. How did that impact your parents? I saw the loss of, uh, of the family farm, you know, affect everyone in my family, uh, my, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and, it really, it touched everybody and, um, it, it was hard to, it was hard to witness that loss and, and just see it kind of manifest itself in, in ways that I think, you know, brought a lot of shame, uh, just thoughts of failure, um, to my, to my family, but you know, they were all incredibly hard workers and they, they all found work and, and did what they had to do to, to keep going. Now, as, as you grew older, and you kind of look back at that time, what did you come to learn about your parents, your grandparents, your family, and you know, who they were in accordance to how they responded to this difficult time? I mean, incredible resilience. I think um, they, you know, they all did what they had to do. They pushed ahead and, um, and just did whatever it took to, to keep going and, and I, I love them all so much and I, I feel really lucky. You know, my parents, my dad went and he found work at a, uh, a prison and I know that was not the most enjoyable work to do, but, um, and my mother, she went back to school. She was a school teacher for, you know, until she retired and she was just such a bright light in the community to, to everyone that she met. Um, so I feel like, you know, that that Midwest work ethic that, mm -hmm. that runs through my bones. You know, your debut album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, it chronicled your life up to that point. You know, talk to me about the approach you took. Like, did you take it to make it sort of a benchmark? Did you come out there with that album, specifically with the stories you were telling? Did you do that to tell the audience, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this is what I'm about? Yeah, I think I really wanted to be transparent. Um, when I started writing that album, I was just coming from a much different place than I had prior. And I felt like 
we had every all of our eggs in one basket. My husband had sold the car to make the album. I had pawned my wedding ring. Mm. We were in a really low place with our career, with our marriage. Um, you know, we had we had lost a child to a heart defect, and um, he died after a surgery at Vanderbilt Hospital. And we just went into a really really dark time. Um, so that album was a culmination of of all those things, of all the failure, of uh, just not fitting in and just trying to uh, to make one kind of one last ditch effort of recording, hmm. recording an album that like that might get us out of, you know, working those day to day hard jobs that were I mean, we were just living below the poverty line. And I, I still know so many great songwriters in this town that just deserve more than they have, you know. Wow, you you have faced all of this incredible hardship, the loss of a child. You and your husband are making it, try to make it however you can. You throw everything to the wall for this record. What was that experience like? At the same time, you were able just to be so open and raw and honest, like you said. What's that experience like being able to do that for this first project where you don't know how it's going to fall upon people's ears? I think just like writing the book, making the album, making all the art that we have made, it's just, it's a way to process feelings. It's a way to process trauma. And it's how you respond to the hardships in your life that, um, that build character. Um, I think that you can't have joy without sorrow. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, I was just looking at the world through different eyes when I made that record and I kind of go, it's like, there's the before time, you know, before I lost my son and then there's after it was just, nothing was, was ever the same for me after that. But I've, I still feel so lucky that I, that I get to play music for a living. And I think, you know, had third man not picked up my album at all, I think I would still be making music because it just, it brings me joy. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to a track of some of your music, a track from Midwest Farmer's Daughter, which won the American Music Prize for Best Debut Album. This is Hurtin' on the Bottle. Never too old to learn how to crawl. That's like accepting humility. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that line a lot. How would you describe your sound on this album? Um, yeah, this this album was me really falling in love with, being in love with classic country music. Um, and yeah, it was it really was what I was connecting with because it's 
is what we were living at that time. I mean, it's this is a drinking song, but it's definitely, um, you know, it's a sad drinking song mm-hmm. if you listen to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in a major key, so it comes off as like a happy party song, but um, I'm I'm hinting to what I was still struggling at all over that first album. Yeah, as with anybody who experienced in drinking to kind of mask or assuage certain moods, yeah, you feel up and it's a blast when you're doing it, but when you get to that realization... It's a sad place. Yeah, it is. It's fun till it's not. Mm-hmm. My, my mom used to say that all the time. All right. So if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour with singer-songwriter Margot Price about her early years in Nashville, which she details in her new book, Maybe We'll Make It. So you moved to Nashville in 2003. Take us back to that time. What was it like to be here as a newcomer who dreamed of making music? Man, it was so exciting. It was it was absolutely thrilling to move to a new place. I mean, I had I had not experienced, you know, a new city ever. Um and the club scene, the songwriter scene, it was just it was a lot different than I thought it was gonna be. There were just so many different types of music being played and going on here. I mean, of course, like, you know, there was like what was on the radio and there was like Nashville star and stuff that kind of, I wasn't as drawn to, but once I got here and I started going out to these like writer's nights and, um, and meeting people and seeing bands, I was, I was hooked on this city. Mm -hmm. I really was. You know, in the book, you talk about working a lot of odd jobs to make it by and make ends meet. And you were just telling us a little while earlier about you know, the struggles that it was for you and your husband. What was, what were things like back then? How many different kind of odd jobs did you have? Oh, I was, uh, I was doing a little bit of everything. I, I think my first waitressing job was at a TGI Fridays in Antioch. Nice. I worked at the mall there in Antioch as well, doing retail. I sold men's suits. I did interior and exterior painting tiling. I did, uh, I taught dance lessons. I was the director of the Green Hills YMCA. I was teaching dance and gymnastics and stuff there. I, I worked a million jobs. I, I bartended down on Broadway at Layla's. Um, it was, yeah, we went through the gamut of, of all those things. So let's move on to another clip that you have. It's from Midwest Farmer's Daughter. This is called Hands of Time, which won the Song of the Year at the American Music Honors and Awards International Song of the Year, UK American Awards. Let's take a listen.
I was actually listening to this as I drove into work this morning. And I was thinking, you know, you're, you realize that you can't change the past, but this deep, deep desire to want to do that, not only for yourself, but for your parents that you just, just you know, described and told us what they were going through. Talk to me about that, that desire. I think everybody just wants a wants the same thing. You know, we all just want security and, and happiness and, and safety for the people we love. Um, you know, I I wanted to to make something of myself and I and I did, you know, want to have something to show for my life's work and I really felt, you know, when I wrote that song, I felt like everything was failing, but that was a song that I wasn't writing for anybody else. I was writing that song for me. And um, it was a big moment of clarity to to be able to do that. That was really when I kind of started my my true journey of, uh, of just writing my truth. Mm. In your new book, Maybe We'll Make It, you talk about navigating rejection and dealing with that. There was one incident with the label back in 2015, and you've got an excerpt you'd want to share from with us from that book. Is there any context you'd like to share before getting into and reading that passage? Um, yeah, this, this was just like the year of rejection that we had uh, being turned down by every label um, after we'd made Midwest Farmer's Daughter. And so I guess I just want to say to anybody out there listening, um, it's just a really tough business to be in and just keep making your art, keep pushing forward. Um, yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a little piece for maybe we'll make it. We kept chasing the illusion of good news. We were ad added last minute to a new festival called Wildwood Revival that my friend Libby Rose curated. The lineup was hip, and although we had to drive through the night from Pennsylvania to be there to play at two in the afternoon, we were thrilled at the prospect of a proper show. Most important of all, the festival was in Georgia, and the president of the label that had contacted us was going to come and see us play. The band and I squeezed into the Explorer and hightailed it from Pennsylvania down to Arnoldsville, Georgia, through the night. Jeremy and I took turns behind the wheel for a 12-hour drive. It was brutal. We burned rubber to get there, and when we arrived, everyone was exhausted, sore, and cracked out. I was worried about whether I would be able to remember the words of my songs, but I was determined to stay focused and give a memorable performance. After all, it could be our big break. We loaded in, changed into our show clothes, and tuned up. There wasn't much time before we took the stage, but somehow we pulled it together and put on a great show. The crowd was deeply engaged. We were given a round of applause to play an encore. When we got off the stage, everyone was on cloud nine. I set out to find the mysterious president of the label, who was no doubt watching out there, and I hoped he was blown away. But no one had seen him. It wasn't that big of a place, and there was only one stage, so there was no way he missed us. I found out a few hours later that the president never showed. When I asked if he was still interested and wanted to come see us at another show, a representative from the label replied, Actually, we're sad to say we have to pass on Margot. We like the album, 
but we already have two girls on our label and we just can't sign anymore. The news hit me like a ton of bricks. I had no idea what my being a girl had to do with it. That specific rejection stuck with me for a long time because it wasn't personal. It was sexist. I wondered how many other talented women out there weren't being signed simply because they were women. I carry that moment with me today, knowing that I've always had to work twice as hard as the men to get what I want. But the way I figure, twice the work means twice the practice. And maybe that just makes me stronger in the end. You know, we've talked about that a few times on this show. Labels having this policy of one woman or maybe two, but not no one daring to have three women on their label still goes on today. What are your comments? How do you feel about that? I think, you know, just being able to tell that story, I, I hope that it breaks down some walls. And I, I think that we are beginning to see some, some really great change of foot. I think that the Americana Music Association has been much more inclusive, not just with gender, but with race. I think that, you know, it's, it's awkward to talk about these things. And I would like to not talk about these things. I would like to not have to, mm. you know, share these experiences at all. But I think that, I think that it's, uh, it's just opening people's eyes. Not long after this ordeal with the, let's call him the absentee label president, you had a series of tests with Third Man Records, Jack White's label. What happened after those tests? Third Man accepted me for who I was. They liked the record the way that it was. And, and they gave me a shot and I will never be able to repay them. I, it still feels like a dream. <laughs> um, everything just, it just completely exploded after that. And um, I'm just really thankful to Jack White and, and Ben Swank for believing in me and for just letting me follow my vision and seeing it all the way through. You know, you went from being a 19 year old with a guitar and a dream to having a deal with a label that truly believed in your music. That sounds like the Nashville dream for a lot of aspiring musicians, particularly young ones. You know, so as you look and reflect on this city and how much it's changed in nearly 20 years, the 20 years you've been here, what two things for you? What comes to mind? And then do you think the way you came up is still possible for musicians, young musicians in Music City today? Well, I would, I would love to think that it is, and I would love to think that people can come here and be themselves and, um, you know, follow their dream. But I think that just the way that the world is changing, I think that, um, indie artists have, have a lot to go up against. I think um, these big tech companies, these streaming companies, and the way that we are devaluing the songwriter. Um, I mean, this is this is the place for songwriters to come and follow their dream. And I think that we're devaluing art, and that's just that's just the internet, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that that 
humans and that music fans are still hungry for real songs and for real stories. And so, of course, I would love to tell everyone to to keep fighting and keep pushing and um, just, yeah, we got to we got to keep on the the quest for making and creating and consuming uh, real art. The Internet is no close comparison to real life. No, it's not. We have to take a real quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with singer, songwriter, and author Margot Price. What's your favorite memory meeting Margot Price and sh- or seeing her perform? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking with singer-songwriter Margot Price about her life and career. The Grammy-nominated musician released her memoir, Maybe We'll Make It, in October, and her forthcoming album, Strays, is set to come out early next year. Keep the conversation going. So, you know, you're familiar with writing a song. I can only imagine writing a book is working a different set of like creative muscles. That's just you and it's the page. What was the process like for you? Well, it was a lot of fun, but I did nearly lose my mind, I think, Hmm. in the editing process. And it consumed me. I had to put my songwriting on on the back burner for a minute so I could really focus on this. And I... You know, it's it's different than having the melody there to kind of soften the blow of difficult words. When I began writing this book um, four and a half years ago, you know, I was pregnant, but I had not um, kind of made the decision to give up alcohol. And so as I was reading the book back and I was kind of processing a lot of things, um, I began to kind of see what I had been through in a different light, almost like seeing it as an outsider and just having a little bit of compassion for myself. Mm. Um, And I also, yeah, started therapy in the middle of writing this book because it just, it was opening a lot of wounds and I didn't quite know um, how it was going to be received. Um, I was worried about being judged for talking so openly about um, you know, things like substance abuse and uh, depression. And um, so the first draft of the book looked a lot different than what mm-hmm. what people are reading today. You mentioned, you know, showing care for yourself. Was, was this one of the first times you did that? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm my own worst critic. And um, I, I think that it's it's been hard for me Um to love myself. I think I've had a lot of, um, a lot of self-value, a lot of, uh, like body dysmorphia, just, just being, not liking who I am Mm. and, and feeling like maybe if I looked differently or something that I would be further in my career, um, so I think, you know, it was just kind of reading it all back that 
just gave me a, a different a different view on it all. I think age age helps too. Yeah, you know your memoir is really open and unflinching, and you know over the course of the book, you and your husband, musician Jeremy Ivy, you go through a lot, and it, it a lot of it's very painful. You know, was that hard to share, or did you couple that along with you know what you you just expressed about sharing stories about substance abuse to a very here you have an endearing and adoring audience, but you also have a highly critical audience. And we were just talking about the internet. People in the comment sections can say what they want and they feel they have the right to do those things. Was it hard to open up about you and Jeremy? It was. He definitely encouraged me to be, like I said, transparent. I felt like when I wrote the first pass of the book, there just wasn't as much of the vulnerability in there because you know, I was I was worried about what people might say. Um, but he just, Jeremy just has a way of of letting me know that everything's going to be okay. And we feel really strong in where our marriage is at now. And the things that we went through after losing a child, I've, people can judge me f- for whatever they want, but I was just doing the best that I could with the tools that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just really proud of us that that we did make it through um, because we had, we had a lot that we were up against. I mean, the divorce rate is pretty high anyway, but when you add losing a child on top of that and a failing career, um, it was really a recipe for disaster. I'm curious, what does this mean for you as an artist? You know, there's this narrative or this trope that the artist or the creative person has to be in torment. We have to be in pain in order to create. The idea that this pain and hardship brings out the best art in us, you know? Does it have struggle? Okay, I want it. I'm a hip-hop fan, and it's all over that, you know? What does that say to you? Like, how do you respond to that idea? Ah, this society does love our artists to be tortured, and I lived in that for a long time. I lived in that thought. I perpetuated my pain. I made it worse than it was. I turned down therapy mm. for years and years because A, there was a stigma around it in my hometown that if you got a therapist that you just had to be so lost and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I perpetuated it with my abusive drinking. And um, I think everybody kind of has this this like romantic thought that it's going to be, you're going to be like Hemingway. Mm. But what I have found, um, I've, I gave up alcohol almost two years ago and I feel like I'm in the most wonderful creative space. I feel like it's hard to make art when you're angry and you, you know, you can't be fully angry when you sit down to write a song. Of course you can process it later. And I'd love to write a good mean song (laughs) (laughs) and channel your energy. But I think that it's just such a myth that we have to be tortured. And, um, you know, I, I idolized a lot of people who were tortured. I, I idolized a lot of their drug abuse and and thought that I had to do that and wore it like a badge of honor on my sleeve, Mm. but no one can last like that for that extended amount of time. And I hit my breaking point finally. And I'm glad that, um, I've learned to take care of myself so I can, maybe be around and make some more records and write some more books. Mm. 
How does that feel, being in the public view, yet fully embracing and in control of your well-being? I think it's incredibly empowering. And, and just like I said, taking control of my own narrative, taking control of um, what I want to say, what I want to do, and, and where I want to go. Um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to live in the public eye. And I had a lot of fear about even quitting drinking. I thought, oh, no one's going to you know, think I'm cool anymore. They're going to think, oh, I didn't know she had such a problem. I didn't know, you know, but alcohol is one of the only uh, drugs that you have to explain yourself in this country for not taking. Hmm. And hmm. I just, I, I really want to reframe that. I feel like, like giving it up has been the most rebellious thing I've ever done. I really do feel um, like more people should um, try it. I, I never really intended to quit fully, but I have this incredible psychedelic experience that I have had to thank for it and for kind of reprogramming my brain. I also like went out and bought a bunch of books and, and did a lot of reading. And it's just been like a truly like a miracle. I had tried to give it up so many times, so many times. I thought I had control of it so many times. And and now I, I finally have just been able to eradicate it, not not even think about it. I haven't like went to AA. I haven't done meetings or anything, but it's just been, it's been so freeing. Hmm. So on that note, what's your advice to younger musicians, even older ones, who are artists, who are creative people, who are putting themselves through the crucible according to whatever tropes they think they have to live up to? The only person that you really have to live with is yourself. And so I think a lot of times we get caught up when we're writing music and when we're trying to create this image and this, you know, this alter ego, um, you get caught up in thinking, what do other people want to hear? What do other people want me to be? Um, with all my flaws, I am who I am. And I think once people start accepting that, start accepting themselves, um, we can just, we can just live with a lot less pain and it's, it's been incredible. It's, uh, it's a journey that, it, that anybody should take, I think. You know, you mentioned a little earlier that you like to write a good mean song. Your one of your two th 2022 releases, um, change of heart has some of those elements in it. Let's take a listen.
that a lot it, you know change of heart you're just talking about how you made these great changes over the course of this show we've listened to songs from you know up to seven years ago till the present reflecting on this changes reflecting on your life when you think about that how has your understanding about life art and love how has that changed I have really learn to just to follow you know my heart to follow my muse wherever that takes me um you know this song i wrote this song with my husband jeremy and it's you know it's veering less in the the traditional country world mm -hmm. um and you know i think that we're still seeing as i've talked about you know women being treated as lesser it still is there. I mean, back in Loretta Lynn's day, it was 13.7% of the songs that you heard on the radio were women. Now it's just 13% on country radio. Mm. So I have veered away um, from that world because it's, it, it, you can only, I think that you can only go so far. They, they do not want, um, they do not want people in a lot of these organizations in the mainstream country world that are going to talk about, uh, you know, sexism, ageism, racism. Uh, they just want people to sit and kind of look pretty and mm. and keep their opinions to themselves. So, I'm I'm just following following where the song takes us. I'm just going where it feels good for me, and I just don't want to get stuck up, you know, stuck doing the same thing and uh, getting creatively in a rut. So yeah, just trying to trying to do what feels natural. Following your own path rather than staying in your lane. I like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I really I really like that a whole bunch. Margot Price, really an absolute pleasure to be able to sit with you, to meet you, and to talk with you. Margot Price, singer, songwriter, and author. Her new book, Maybe We'll Make It, is out now, and her forthcoming fourth solo album, Strays, comes out early next year. Margot. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I'm so grateful. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, our region gets a good amount of sunlight, but is that enough to support a boon in solar power? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent Jindamir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>